How are you this morning? Yeah, are you well? Are you, uh, I, I have to um, commend you and uh, just for braving the elements this morning. I know that um, things seem to be pretty calm when I woke up, but then on my road ride here, my drive here, uh, it got pretty nasty, windy and rainy, and you can always tell when the rain is coming in sideways that, um, that it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to get here. So thank you for being here, and I trust that your time here will be of great encouragement to you and to your faith in the Lord. I do want to say, uh, just to follow up on what Andre shared earlier, next Sunday's sharing service, uh, if you have not been, I would really encourage you to be to come and attend. For many people, I've heard this through the years, for many people, that is the highlight service of the year. Because it really is an opportunity to hear from one another about what God has done in our lives, uh, the good and the challenging, and, uh, and how he's weaving uh, goodness and grace in and through it all. So that's next Sunday, same time, same place, 10.30 here next Sunday morning, and we just look forward for you, uh, to you being here. For now, though, can you take your Bible, please, and meet me in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. Today we conclude um, this year's three-part Advent series. It's a series that we've drawn from Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and from these chapters we learn that, that even the birth of Jesus reveals that He is King. Part 1 in the series, you, you recall part 1 in the series, taken from the genealogy uh, of Jesus that begins Matthew's Gospel, was called Anticipating the King. Part 2, which Andre brought forth uh, last week which, and centered on... Um, on Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, was called Announcing the King. And this morning, with part three, we move to Adoring the King. Anticipating, Announcing, Adoring. Now, to adore is to love. But it's a special kind of love. To love deeply, affectionately, uh, even almost excessively. Uh, it's the kind of love that delights in and, and dotes on its subject. I was thinking about this this week. When was the last time you doted on Jesus? Or thought of Him as being adorable? Adorable, in a way, it kind of seems beneath him, right? Like it's just a little too casual, not reverential enough. But I think that's the beauty. I think that's the point. I think that's the significance of the incarnation. That he, Jesus, who was in the form of God became like us. He made Himself like us. A somebody, from the world's eyes, a somebody became a nobody by choice. 
He was born into a family just as we are. He came out of the womb as a baby just like us. He was a child as we once were, even as some of our children and grandchildren are today. And, and is there anything more disarming, more inviting than a young child? More adorable. That's how God has come to us in Christ. And when it comes to the drama of the Christmas story, certain characters come immediately to mind, right? I mean, Mary and Joseph, they're, they're at the top of the list. The shepherds, the angels, uh, the little drummer boy. Actually, that one's not in Scripture, and only one person caught it over here. I was just doing that to test you. Got a great story about the little drummer boy that I'll share with you later for the sake of someone I know and love very, very much. But among, among those characters who are in Scripture, among these beloved participants are the wise men. The wise men are known for their journey to Jesus. And in this way, they serve as examples for us as we walk our respective paths to the Lord. These men and their quest for Christ are recorded in Scripture for our benefit by observing their path to Jesus and the joy they found in Him, I think we can find strength and hope, strength in our journey and hope that doesn't disappoint. And so I want to read this with you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. These very familiar words, I trust, very familiar to many of you. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the privilege and really the, the great honor we have this morning to gather uh, as a family of faith around these words that for many of us are very, very familiar. So my prayer for us today would be that their familiarity would be a blessing to us and not a hindrance. They would be a comfort to us and that you, O Lord, would speak them to us anew, perhaps in a new way. You would open the eyes of our hearts and unstop our ears so that we might see and hear the wonder of Jesus again and learn from these who have pursued Jesus and found Him to be the light of their lives. Do that in us and for us, we pray now. Through His name, Amen. Now, relatively little is known, relatively little is known of the wise men or the magi, as it reads in Greek. We want to know more. But Matthew doesn't uh, tell us much. Contrary to popular opinion, we don't know how many there were. There could have been three, or 30, or 130. Uh, He doesn't give us their name, their rank, their age. Historically, though, we know just enough to begin piecing together at least a partial picture It's believed they were members of an ancient Eastern priesthood of sorts descended from the Medes. We know they were influential, that upon their approval, Medo-Persian kings ascended to the throne, and, and also they approved and appointed judges to seats of power. The Magi were key players in the establishment of kings and kingdoms. Some excelled in philosophy and medicine and theology. Their primary skills, though, were in astronomy and dream interpretation, although science sometimes mixed with superstition as astrology, uh, I'm sorry, astronomy sometimes gave way to astrology. But by and large, I, I think by most accounts, the Magi were truth seekers. They were. It's just that like many people today, they often looked for it in the wrong places. In places like fortune telling or sorcery, which would explain where we get the words magic or magician. And notice that these wise men, though foreigners from a faraway land, were familiar with Jewish teaching. Their question in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, assumes prior knowledge of a Jewish Messiah. This raises an interesting question. How did an ancient eastern tribe of priests come to learn of a long-expected Jewish king? And the answer put forth by many scholars, one that that makes good sense, is the prophet Daniel. There's at least some hint that here that traces back to Daniel and his influence in the Babylonian and Medo 
Persian Empire some six centuries before the birth of Christ. Daniel was a Jewish exile in Babylon, taken as a youth who lived much of his life in service to foreign kings. And he was unparalleled. Many of you know the story. He was unparalleled in his service and unequaled in his ability to interpret dreams. And so Daniel, remember, was actually appointed chief of the wise men by King Nebuchadnezzar. His reputation then preceded him before King Belshazzar, who came after Nebuchadnezzar. And when Darius the Mede took the throne, he also spotted Daniel's unique ability and skill set and was prepared to make him second in command over the whole kingdom. And so it's quite possible then that, that, um, that Daniel, being a devout Jew and, and uncompromising in his devotion to God, Daniel used his unique position within these empires to teach the Hebrew Scriptures to the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. As chief of the Magi, (coughs) he probably taught them about God and about the coming Messiah who was to be sent (coughs) by God. And these teachings probably passed from generation to generation. And here we are in Matthew 2, some 600 years later, observing these particular wise men heading west to Jerusalem in search of the promised king about whom they've, they and their people have heard for years. And I don't know about you, but I find this very fascinating. Just to think that God in His providence planted seeds of faith in pagan lands during the exile of His people. Even though these seeds wouldn't sprout, at least in this case, for hundreds of years. I imagine Daniel meeting these wise men in heaven someday, swapping stories and comparing notes. Who would have thought that that this part of the Christmas story, which has become so memorable, harkens all the way back to the time of Jewish exile, which for the Jewish people who went through it, who lived through it, was anything but memorable. It all owes to the goodness of God. And so we've considered the Magi themselves, and I want to consider, I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about the character of their quest as described here in this chapter, and then the culmination of their quest. Those two sections, character and culmination, that's where we want to hang our thoughts this morning. First, the character or the nature of, of their quest for Jesus. Verse 1 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. But the context suggests that some time has passed since the actual event of Christ's birth. No longer 
is he called a baby, but he's now a child. Uh, in, in verse 11, we find that they're no longer at a manger, but they're now in a house. Uh, and later in verse 16, when Herod orders the slaughter of all boys two years old and younger, all of this suggests that Jesus is probably between one to two years of age at this point in time. And so the, the, the uh, traditional notion of three magi, or three kings, as some of our Christmas cards and carols suggest, the traditional notion of three magi gathered with the shepherds at the manger around the baby Jesus uh, just isn't true. And so I'm really sorry if that... If that ruins something for you, I know there's, a, there's beautiful imagery there. Uh, there are great songs to be sung there. Uh, there are wonderful uh, Christmas cards to be sent uh, there, but it's, 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 it's not that true. However, you'll be happy to know that I do have a workaround that may be of some benefit to you. It's just that whenever you set up your Christmas nativity, just make sure to take the wise men and kind of put them at a distance from Jesus as if they're, they're making their way to him, but they're not there yet. And if you're able, like if your table or your, wherever it is you're setting, if you're able to like put them to the east of Jesus, that would be even more true. So, so that is a way that you can still appreciate this imagery and the nostalgia involved while also maintaining a degree of biblical integrity. The question, though, is what do we learn about the search of these wise men? What do we learn about the character of their quest? And I think we learn at least three things. I think we learn that they pursued Jesus responsively, Uh, longingly and joyfully. First, responsively. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Not until they saw the star did they set out on their journey. In other words, they responded to a sign from above, from God. It's curious, though, that apparently not everyone saw this star, not everyone in the East. Apparently others in that region were too busy, too occupied by the circumstances of life, too reliant upon the predictability of their routine, or maybe they just become numb to the possibility that God could actually break into their lives at a moment's notice. And so they stopped looking, they stopped observing, 
they stopped taking in the world around us, around them. I mean, it's hard to see the stars if you never lift your head. But not these wise men. These men routinely looked heavenward, and in so doing, they saw what wasn't there before, and something clicked. Maybe Daniel's teaching that had been passed down to them suddenly made sense for years. They'd searched the heavens, and I'm sure they were stunned by the enormity of it all. Of course, they didn't understand its complexity and all its fullness, just as we don't even today. But the heavens declare the glory of God. And when they saw that star, that star, they responded by seeking the one whose star it was. Last week, I so appreciated this. Last week, Andre talked about how the angel of the Lord met Joseph in the midst of Joseph's struggle to make sense of what was happening in his life when Mary suddenly showed up pregnant apart from him. And Andre shared that that is an example of how God uh, God takes the initiative to meet us where we are. And I believe that's what's happening here as well. When the wise men see Christ starts, another example of God graciously meeting us where we're at and drawing us to himself. Obviously, the Magi sensed something larger was going on here, but they didn't know the full extent of it at the time. And yet they didn't let what they didn't know keep them from what they did. That's such an important lesson for us. So they responded to what God was doing in their lives in those moments. They pursued Jesus responsively. Number two, they pursued Jesus longingly. The star, this mere sign of Christ, it just wasn't enough for them. They longed to meet Jesus personally. Now, exactly where these men were and when they saw the star, we don't know. It simply reads, from the east. But if indeed they came from the area of ancient Babylon or modern-day Iraq via a main trade route, they probably covered somewhere between 800 to 1,000 miles. So you can imagine the preparations that went into this trip. Uh, When our family of seven, even when we head across town, it requires forethought and preparation. And of course, we have all the conveniences of modern travel, which they obviously did not. They traveled hundreds of miles across relentless terrain, including the blistering desert where temperatures can reach 130 degrees Fahrenheit, and they probably rode on camels. I've never, I've never ridden on a camel. They don't look comfortable. (laughs) 
And then how would they eat? How would they drink? Where would they rest along the way? Where would they sleep? This was a a, a very dangerous trip. The elements were unforgiving and the threat of thieves was very real, but, but they were intent in their pursuit. They were undeterred by the many preparations and the potential dangers. And finally, they arrived at Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, where you'd expect to find a Jewish king. But notice, there's no indication that the star actually led them to Jerusalem. In fact, if you read the text, it seems that after rising in the eastern night sky and getting them on their way, the star seems to disappear. Those in Jerusalem haven't seen it. No one's heard about it. And it's not until the wise men leave Jerusalem for Bethlehem does it reappear in verse 9. And so their journey required a degree of faith as well as great perseverance and great preparation. So I want you to imagine traveling hundreds of miles across difficult terrain, meeting many dangers along the way, all of the inconveniences that you'd face along the way, all of the obstacles you'd face along the way, all of the difficulties. And then finally, tired and weary, you arrive at your intended destination only to learn that you're not there yet that you've actually gone to the wrong place. I'm sure you know how deflating that is. It's like climbing a mountain that never ends. Just when you think you've reached the top, the trail takes another turn in an upward direction. And if we're honest, I I was talking to some people this week about this. I think even the holidays feel like this sometimes. Deflating. Discouraging. In fact, for many... This is often the time of year that's the hardest. For many, it's this time of year when we, when we most feel the loss of loved ones who are no longer with us. It's this time of year as friends and family get together when we most feel the strain of relationships that are broken or in disrepair. Or it's this time of year when we come to the end of yet another year and there's just this lingering heaviness of heart. As if the struggles of the last 12 months have collected and clung like barnacles to the underside of our lives. This is where faith, it's in those moments, this is where faith is put to the test. That's where our trust in God is measured. 
It's in that gap between what we expect to happen and what has yet to happen. That gap between the now and the not yet. And it's about what God is doing along the way on the journey itself and not just the destination. What if, what if, like the wise men, what if we approached this time of year as a journey to Bethlehem rather than than viewing Christmas Day as the end-all, be-all? What if we approach life that way? The journey is where we trust. The journey is where we wait. The journey is where we grow. The journey is where God shapes our hope and He sanctifies our longings. What if we allowed our longings to lead us to the one in whom they are ultimately fulfilled? What if we allowed the obstacles along the way or even the disappointments to to actually become part of our story instead of unwanted interruptions? I bet those six miles that separated Bethlehem from Jerusalem, those six miles may as well have been 60 miles or 600 miles, given how much they'd already traveled. And yet these wise men remained hopeful, and they pursued Jesus longingly. Number three, we find that they also pursued Jesus joyfully. As they left for, for Bethlehem, verses 9 and 10, behold, the star that they'd seen when it rose back home, that star, it now went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The word exceedingly means they could hardly contain themselves. The anticipation had crescendoed and now it nearly overwhelmed them. I can't help but think when I think about this picture right here, I can't help but picture kids on Christmas morning, springing out of bed to wake their parents at some god-awful hour, sprinting to the tree, to the stockings hung by the chimney with care. Do you remember what it was like to be a kid on Christmas morning? Do you remember how hard it was to fall asleep on Christmas Eve night? But knowing that you had to get to sleep because the sooner you went to bed, the sooner the morning came. Do you remember counting down the days? I still count the days. Sleep isn't an issue anymore. As most parents know, by the time Christmas Eve evening gets here, you are beyond exhausted. Every day, 
gets us one day closer. And that childlike anticipation is just too hard to contain. That's part of the Christmas story here. I think that's part of what makes Christmas what it is. I think that's part of Advent. Anticipation. The world waited hundreds of years for the Christ to come, and now He has come. Israel endured 400 years of silence between the final prophecies about the Messiah and the actual arrival of the Messiah. But when the fullness of time had come, the Bible says, God sent forth His Son. And I think there's encouragement for us in that, this sense of the fullness of time. When hope wavers, when the weight drags on, when God seems silent, don't give up. The promise fulfilled will be all the sweeter for the delay endured. And the joy of the Magi, pictured here, illustrates this perfectly. With the star above them, once gone but now reappearing, they pursued Jesus joyfully, responsively, longingly, joyfully. This describes the character or the nature of their pursuit of Jesus. But, but how did they respond once they found Him? Notice then the culmination of their quest in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped Him. And then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They had arrived. Finally, they were there. The star that had led them to Jesus, and they went, and when they went into the house, they saw where he was, and they fell down and they worshiped. They fell down. I want you to see. Like they fell down as if involuntarily. As if they couldn't help but fall. As if they were so overcome by the presence of this child, by the goodness of this child, by the purity of this child, by the glory of this child, they couldn't help but fall. And then they opened their treasures and they gave Him gifts. But I want you to notice the order of things. First, they worshipped. Then, they gave gifts. You see that? First, they worshipped. Then, they gave gifts. Now, I have read this, probably like you. I have read this passage Dozens of times, probably hundreds over the course of my lifetime. And yet as I read it this week and reflected upon it again in a new way, I noticed this word then in a whole new way. This, this word then is a very important word because it sets the priority. The word then teaches that the giving of gifts came after worship and was in fact an act of worship. This word, this word then reminds us, I think, that God wants your heart first. Like He wants your heart first. Not what you can bring to the table. He wants you most of all. He wants the affections of your heart. Not your stuff or your ability, or what you can do for Him. 
In fact, this is the essence of worship. The word here for worship is proskaneo. Pros meaning toward, kaneo meaning to kiss, or literally it's to kiss toward. It's very personal. And it's very, very affectionate. You see, these magi, they didn't travel all that way just to see Jesus, just to check the facts about Jesus, or even simply to marvel at Jesus. No, they came to worship Jesus. Not simply to pay their respects. If that were so, they would have worshipped Herod too. But they didn't worship Herod because they came for Jesus. So here we have these powerful men from a priestly tribe of an ancient empire who for centuries directly influenced the establishment of kings and kingdoms and they're coming to adore the King of Kings. If we take final look, maybe a bird's eye view of this passage, I think we can find ourselves here in this story, because I believe there are essentially four types of people pictured here. And which of the four would you say best describes you? Which of these four people or types of people, if you had to take an honest assessment of your response to Jesus today, an honest assessment, just just between you and the Lord, if you had to take an honest assessment of your response to Jesus today, which of these four would describe you best? Are you like Herod? Paranoid? Threatened? Troubled? Jealous of the news of another king? Someone besides you to rule your life? Bothered at the thought of submitting to someone else, someone greater than you? Do you care more? Hear me here. Do you care more about maintaining control, about saving your own throne, than you do about saving your own soul? Or are you like all Jerusalem, as pictured in verse 3? Troubled, along with Herod. Now, why they were troubled, we don't know. Maybe they feared Herod's response. Herod was a ruthless man. He was known for fits of rage and murder. Maybe they feared the Roman, uh, Roman intervention. How would the emperor respond to news of a rival king? This could mean war. It could mean loss of home. It could mean loss of money. It could mean loss of life and family. Whatever it was, For those in Jerusalem, Jesus seemed to represent a disturbance to the status quo. And I'm just curious, is that you? Is that you today? 
Do you chalk Jesus up as just another disruption to your self-focused way of life? I'm doing my thing. I don't have time for that Jesus stuff. Or are you like the chief priests and the scribes in verse 4? Very religious notice, but totally indifferent to Christ. They knew so much about Jesus, about the Christ, and yet they were scarcely interested in actually knowing Him. They knew Scripture. They knew the prophecies. They knew exactly where to turn, chapter and verse. But it was all head knowledge. There was no heart. There was no affection. There was no desire. There was not even an interest in seeing Jesus for themselves. So here you have these magi who are traveling nearly a thousand miles to go see Jesus, and they won't even go five miles up the road. Is that you? Just going through the religious motions but your heart isn't in it. Your heart's cold, distant. Are you like Herod? Or the people of Jerusalem? Or the chief priests and scribes so, so near to Jesus? I mean, he's right there. So close and yet so far away. Or, are you like the Magi who, though far away, drew near? These wise men are forever known for their journey to Jesus and for their response once they found him. And may, they, may we be like them. May the character and culmination of their quest offer, offer help and hope in ours. May this Christmas bring us to Bethlehem all over again. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. God, once again, we want to thank you for these moments we've shared. And I pray that even now you would continue to just stir in our hearts prick our consciences. Lord, maybe there are some of us here who need to, to hear in this moment of clarity that we're more like Herod, we're more like the people of Jerusalem, we're more like the chief priests and scribes. And so I pray that if, if, if there are those amongst us this morning who need to hear that, I pray that they would hear it and that they'd be encouraged this morning to be more like the wise men.
even today as you've spoken to us through your word, would you bring us to Jesus and make our Christmas celebration all the more meaningful as we come to adore him again. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.